pyrrhic victory in finding the 10% of your mind that defines who you are. Ask me anything for episode EF12. Welcome to episode EF36 of the Evolve Faster podcast. Quick spoiler alert, there might be some spoilers in this episode. Looking back at episode EF12, which was season one, episode 11 of the Evolve Faster podcast titled Wired to Fail, Leveling Up in the Game of Life. I'm just going to briefly read a paragraph from the website describing the episode to remind you of what the topics were. Fear is ingrained in all of us. But as Eric Fromm described, there are two main types. First are the sadomasochistic characters who kill the fear by being dependent on either controlling or being controlled. Second is the revolutionary character who embraces the fear by being a free human. Similarly, the famous philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche thought there is little to no difference between success and failure when it comes to their functionality. The human mind is engraved with a false belief that success is heaven and failure is hell. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Sigmund Freud believed our unconscious thoughts and desires define us. So maybe heaven is a place where the unconscious desires define us but not control us. And hell, well, just look at the commercials. We did a behind the podcast last week on this same episode. And here we're going to jump in a remainder of questions that weren't specific related to kind of genesis of the idea and how we built it. You can submit questions to evolvefaster.com forward slash discuss. And here we're gonna to try to tackle the following. Why does failure build up the thrill of success? Is this chip implant thing possible? Can humans merging with technology help to define ourselves? Do you have a plan to transfer your content to different media? When I do the thought experiment, I can't figure out what my 10% is. What does that mean about me? Are there categories or tips that can help me define myself? How did Koji help people if there was no coin? And what is the history of the Pyrrhic victory? So why does failure build up the thrill of success? There are many studies on the chemical explosions that happen in our brain when we experience success. I'll link to some in the show notes, but we're hardwired to feel good when we succeed and success acts as a sort of chill pill that tells you, okay, you're good, you can feel safe now. But apparently even more neural activity happens when we fail. Failure puts us into a sort of alert mode. Something has to be done. And it seems to be a natural drive that mother nature decided to put in us because she decided we won't have the motivation to do it by ourselves. Touche, mama. So as discussed in the previous episodes, like episode EF10, just imagine if you didn't feel pain, but something bad is happening to your body. Would you act to fix it if you didn't have the pain as an indicator? Your initial answer might be yes, of course, but think about it. There's something bad happening in your body probably right now. It's hard to imagine that the majority of us are 100% healthy. We eat bad food, we drink, and the reason we don't stop harming our body is that there's not always an obvious alarm for these type of chronic bad ideas that we impart on our bodies and minds every day. There's lots of research and proof saying that smoking a pack of cigarettes is bad, but people still do it. Same as for the body, there's no alarm to tell you that you're doing something wrong. Would you act on your supposed free will to fix it? So strangely enough, although we hate failure at the moment, studies also reveal that many people have a positive outlook when asked about their past mistakes. So take something like your first breakup. 
perhaps trivial to you today, but then it wasn't. Think about it and ask yourself, how did you feel? You might feel indifferent. You might think positively because you learned that love isn't easy, but it's unlikely that you'll feel the same pain today that you did 10 to 20 years ago when that happened. I read about a neuroscientist named Ian Robertson who believes that success and failure have a bigger effect on defining us than genetics or drugs. No, of course, environmental circumstances of our life and successes and failures might trigger genetic traits. But either way, his idea is interesting because if we look at genetics, it's something that's built into us by default and we feel we often can't consciously do much about it. While drugs are many times an explicit attempt to manipulate who we are, even if just for a short amount of time. So to have something, almost a tool that enables us to define who we are would be amazing. There is a biological reason why you feel good after succeeding and bad after defeat. It supposedly might have to do with the release of dopamine, the hormonal celebrity, or lack of it in the case of a defeat. We can look at it like hunger or thirst. You've been failing for some time and your body and mind craves that chemical that makes you feel good. So actually the mere anticipation of a reward starts to increase dopamine in our brain. So the pot is slowly beginning to boil and when you finally succeed, boom, it's as if somebody opened a dam and let the water run free. When we succeed, our brain becomes cocky and thinking it's more and more powerful. So this can have an extremely positive effect as the brain starts to change and really does become more and more efficient. No matter if it's true or not, it seems we're wired to succeed or if we put it in more ancient terms, to survive. I also remember an interview with a guy who survived a, a grizzly bear attack. A few days later, after the event, he of course said he never wanted to experience it again. Shocker. But then he went on to say that a few months after it had passed, he started to think about how he could do it again. Now, why would anyone want to do that? All that being said, I have the, the identical feeling about ayahuasca, which I explained in an earlier episode, I believe EF 14 or 15. 10 nights in the Amazon was a mentally and physically exhausting. And when I was in Quito, the capital of Ecuador, a day or two later, staying in a, in a high-end hotel, because we wanted to go somewhere completely different than the jungle for a couple days, and using a hairdryer to diffuse the approximately 200 mosquito bites I had on my legs that were just driving me crazy and reflecting on the insanity of those experiences, I would have told you to go to hell if I had to go back and do that again, even in the same year. But now, only what, about four years later, in my rearview mirror, and reflecting on the progress I made since then and how unstuck it made me and Heidi in a lot of ways, I'd probably consider it again. Though if Heidi hears this episode, she'd probably kill me. So it's not just failure that builds the thrill of success, but the sheer possibility of colossal failure, like a grizzly or ayahuasca ripping you in two, is what makes success feel better. It's almost as if nature made sure we succeed by rewarding us every time we succeed and motivating us when we fail. Is this chip implant thing possible? Can humans merging with technology help to define ourselves? At one point in the future, I don't see why not. Read the Wait But Why article on Elon Musk's Neuralink if you want to understand the potential there. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. There's also a really good Wired article about a scientist who nearly killed himself by self-implanting himself with a, with a chip. 
it's already happened in smaller ways. And back in, I think, earlier, mid-2018, I remember reading about a few thousand people in Sweden inserting a microchip into their body so they can, you know, do things like automatically open doors and turn on stoves. And then about a year later, a similar thing happened in the U.S. of people doing this to make daily tasks easier. So if we're currently in this life and body hacking phase, what's going to come next is anyone's guess, especially as, as AI starts to advance. We should look at it from a different angle as well. Technology that brings great potential, of course, brings great risk. So body chips can make our life easier, but we can also get prone to new kinds of digital diseases, which might be pretty fun and scary to think about. But the theoretical nanobots to fix diseases from the inside, which always sounded far-fetched, there seems to be real progress being made on those fronts now to use, you know, nanobots as certain types of medicines to be able to target specific things like tumors from the inside and destroy them. So it sounds crazy, but it's a reality that seems like it's coming. So I'm guessing creating an exact chip like the one in the episode, more similar to Elon Musk's Neuralink, um, might be a bit harder because the chip in the story is imagined to directly co-work alongside and leverage the human brain, while the before-mentioned chips are really just a singular focused entity inside the human body. Are we willing to pioneer not having to worry about forgetting our passport because it's in our body in exchange for potential identity theft? We're going to have to make quality distinctions and decisions on these type of questions. But I don't know how aware we are of all the biohacking that's happening right now. You know, there's a recently a young biohacker who died, not from his experiments, but, you know, he was injecting himself with untested gene therapies live on stage. And there's a candidate, presidential candidate in 2020, whose party is uh, listing transhumanist values. It's happening. It won't happen overnight. But over the course of the next several years, or certainly decades, the question is not, is it going to happen, but when? So will we be completely immersed in technology? Is it by 2045, as Kurzweil predicts, or later, sooner? I mean, with chips as our new IDs, we're on the brink of finally merging more with the artificial identity of who we are according to our society, family, and surrounding. John Doe will finally be become one with John Doe. Technology will help us be one with our, our identity, but still, what about our Jungian self? Same as Koji's plan, a chip can't solve the problem of defining yourself. That's a solo job, no matter if you're human, a cyborg, or pure AI. In psychology, defining yourself goes through two stages. First is defining yourself on an existential level, when as a kid you realize you're a specific part of this bigger world. And secondly, you define yourself on a categorical level when you realize you and your actions can be experienced both by yourself and others. But how you see yourself doesn't have to be true. We add the virtual and the digital to the puzzle. Will who we are become more of a blur or will it help us see ourselves more clearly? Better yet, will we gain the power to turn a lie into reality? You don't see yourself as a smart person, for example, but the help with technology you suddenly become smart. It becomes who you are. So we're already doing it on a primitive level via things like social media, presenting ourselves in the light or filter of our choosing. So what will happen if artificial becomes the real deal?
do you have a plan to transfer your content to digital media? This question isn't specifically about episode EF12, but I decided to answer it here because this was one of the episodes that made me think about how I thought it might be cool that some or all of these could translate to something like a visual novel, maybe even on just a per episode basis. So in fact, I believe I left in the script something that I wrote that we, we liked, which was when Koji makes his big exit, you know, he's this famous person within this company and he makes this big exit to go off on his own, you know, slams the door or whatever, and he walks slowly through the, the center of this kind of high-tech building. You can hear his footfalls and the entire office has turned their heads to watch him go. To me, when I was writing that scene, I was seeing it like a graphic novel, and I'm not really a comic book person or a graphic novel, but I appreciate them. I've just never really been that into them. But to me, it was like a scene from something like that. And I think I even said in there that it was like a scene from a graphic novel. So I, I included this question here because I, I think it, it could be an interesting thing. These are kind of, you know, modern, high-tech, cautionary tales. Some of the characters are quite normal, but some are quite outlandish, almost uh, graphic novel-ish. So I don't know. I guess this that'd be something I consider producing the whole seasons as a as a book if there's interested in that that could be a different thing but on the graphic novel front it would be if i could find a great artist interested in the project who could give life to the stories you know with a set of unique drawings i think that'd be something to look into and i think it'd be a great challenge because each episode as i've mentioned some of the beauty of not having visuals is that you can kind of do reading style audio style twists and turns that you it would be harder to do if, if you had visuals. For example, a couple of plot lines really rely heavily on the lack of visuals, not just because of logical reasons, but because it allows the listener to fool himself and thus create intrigue. So because there's no visual proof, our brain creates imagery that's subjective and often we're not aware of this subjectivity. So when something happens that doesn't correlate to what we perceived, kind of creates that wow moment. So I think that'd be a great challenge to introduce visuals into the stories, uh, whether it's a visual novel or maybe even a, a streaming style show. I guess some parts would need to be adjusted for the new media, but those would be challenges that would be fun to take on. There's a podcast called Lore that is, you, you may know as a podcast fan, but if you don't, it's a, uh, it's a nonfiction setup where he talks about folklore and it's it's a it's a little bit of a similar format in that he has music and it's told in a fictional format but it is non-fiction and that actually was was purchased by Amazon and it's a video series now so it, it, it can happen to go from medium to medium in the same way that audio allows things you can't do with pictures pictures allows you to do things you can't do with audio I have come to really enjoy the challenge and the sort of creative constraint of only having words, audio, narrative, and music. But the idea of trying to make the same story work in different formats is, is fun to think about. So it could be a tremendous fail, but it could be a tremendous victory. So like everything else, life, right? I definitely like to do it, but for now I'm focusing on the podcast and trying to see where season two is going to go because season one has been hell of a journey. I also have an animated movie script that I've, it's not complete, but it, it you know needs another rewrite or two, but it's moved into a really good good place. And originally had it slated as more of like a narrated TED Talk type of thing, but I actually think it'd make a really good 
animated script. So it's changed a lot since I made that decision. So that's something I'd love to do with an, with an animation partner as well if someone comes along and things work out. All in good time, assuming we get support for the for the podcast and interest continues to grow, I'll be able to develop all these ideas. When I do the thought experiment, I can't figure out what my 10% is. What does that mean about me? This was actually a similar question raised in the, the Behind the Podcast episode last week. And what this is referring to is the scene where Isaac asked Koji, if you had to blow away 90% of your brain, and you couldn't have it back, what 10% would you keep? And it's just a thought experiment. Obviously, it's not a physical, actual thing. One of the theories we didn't use in the final version is Jung's theory of self. Uh, so for Jung, self is a unification of consciousness and unconsciousness that represents you as a whole. So let's imagine this as your 100%. In the center of the consciousness part of your experience is your good old friend, ego, while in the center of everything is self. So through most of your life, thanks to experience, the self gets lost in the existential haze. So there's this task of returning the self, in other words, redefining ourselves. Marley Louise von Franz, who was a Jungian psychologist, stated that returning to self or defining yourself starts by wounding the personality. So this takes us back to failure. So basically, to define yourself, you need failure. Now, this definition might just be the thorniest road possible. So just imagine how many wrong turns there are in this process. You know, decision you make today might not crystallize as a bad decision in the next two years or more. Only after many bad years, you might realize, okay, that action from so many years ago, that was a bad idea. But that's the point. You're, you're going to fail. We're all going to fail. Most of us are likely failing at something right now. We're designed to fail to take wrong turns. You know, so being wounded and accepting we'll get wounded are just crucial steps in the process. And why is it all worth it? Well, because only when we're able to understand ourselves can we truly understand our full potential. So if we don't know what our 10% might be, that doesn't mean something's wrong necessarily. It means you need to keep moving forward to figure out what it is. So although I don't think it was his core intention, Jung described self as a circle where self is both the whole circle and the center of the circle. You know, and the circle has no end, just like defining ourselves likely has no end. So like the Japanese Enzo that I used in the Evolve Faster logo. It's a perpetual process of forgetting and rediscovering whereby putting one piece in the right place, another one gets purged out of its former spot. Are there categories or tips that can help me define myself? Well, is it possible that the will to define or not to define ourselves already defines us? The action or lack of action already tells a lot about who we are, and it doesn't necessarily mean that taking action is good and not taking action is bad. I mean, sometimes not doing something is a better character decision. And although I doubt there are categories or brackets to help us out, there was research done back in the 60s by Manfred Kuhn where he asked people to answer the question, who am I, in 20 different ways. From the answers collected, Kuhn divided to see how we see ourselves in two main categories. Social roles like jobs or family members, and personal traits like calm, nervous, beautiful, ugly. Why not try to write down 20 different answers to the question, who am I? 
the answers might surprise you as you get further and further down that list. So I'm a proponent of putting things down on paper as it sort of forces you to understand what's below like the surface level Daniel Kahneman thinking one and two. What happens when you don't snap to an answer? What are the answers that are, that are beneath that? And when you put things on paper, it also reveals a lot of secrets that you might not be aware what you're actually thinking, but you just haven't given the space to come out. So writing the podcast episodes has definitely been an adventure of discovering who I am in a lot of ways, realizing things about myself I didn't know until I really forced myself to think through issues from both sides. As I stated a couple times in each episode I wrote and recorded, I almost unconsciously started asking myself the questions I was writing down. Do I know who I really am? What are the traits that I'm proud of or still need to work on? I think that taking 20 answers test is a, is a great way to see where your strengths and weaknesses reside. Even better, you can do it with someone else and give 20 answers to each other. That might be an even easier way to see if there are any mismatches between how you see yourself and what you imagine yourself to be. Spoiler alert, there will be mismatches. Um, although that, that game sounds a bit scary because who knows what the other person will write down, but it could definitely give some valuable information that you hadn't thought about. How did Koji help people if there was no coin? So while Koji is revealing the plan, Isaac gives him a warning that there's a risk that Koji might himself become the problem he's trying to solve. So as we discussed, defining yourself is an individual process and thus it becomes pointless if it's heavily reliant on someone else. So the question I always asked myself while developing the story was, if Koji gave a financial reward, would that actually help people with discovering who they are? And it might make life easier for the moment, but would it completely miss the target? Koji's plan balances on a thin line where he knows he needs to take a part without taking too big of a part. So it's one thing when you're trying to help a single friend and completely another when your supposed intention is to shake up people worldwide. Getting money is just bait towards a bigger goal that Koji views as a high risk, high gain equation. So he feels he needs to set up the board, but the rest playing the game of life needs to be done by people on their own. If not, then there's no point. So that's also the reason why Koji seems as if he's found peace with the fact that some people will be hurt or even die, something Isaac condemns completely. And also, that's what makes Koji an anti-hero. So when there are no safety nets, anything can happen, and Koji takes the role to provide the initial push for people to start walking that tightrope. But once they're there, it's all up to them. They will survive and come out as more defined people, or they'll fail, and that will be the end. For Koji personally, it's there's also a specific reward in that he does feel people who fail will be filtered out, leaving people deserving of existence, which gives it a darker tone. Because in the end, Koji isn't on the side of people, government, or whatever third party, he's basically just pissed off. So Koji isn't really helping people in the usual sense of the word. He's helping by creating a dangerous trial where every person faces their own demons. What is the history of the Pyrrhic victory? So it's named after King Pyrrhus who allegedly suffered such big army losses in a, in a quote-unquote victory against the Romans that it actually could have been considered a loss. Although allegedly, the losses are exaggerated because, you know, drama is interesting. 
The reason we decided to use this term was to emphasize the possible casualties of Koji's actions, even if he succeeds. So if everything went according to his plan, he could end up in prison for life and also hurt many people. In his achieved victory, is it really a victory? To be more precise, how does each person define personal victory? For Koji, this was a victory no matter what the results. But can we look at the concept of Pyrrhic victory both from two different viewpoints? So let's take it from the outlook of Koji first. Have you ever had to set a goal you had to achieve no matter what the consequences? That probably doesn't often happen in our lives, maybe a couple times. But how do you think you'd feel if by succeeding you achieved a Pyrrhic victory? You lost more than you might have gained. What could you desire so much in your life that you'd be willing to sacrifice everything else? And what does that say about you? The other outlook is more common. So for example, you'd want something or someone so much that you had to go through so much trouble to get what you want. And then when you finally got it, it felt underwhelming and you started to question all your actions. The main difference is the value of the achieved goal. If the goal has real value, the Pyrrhic victory can be worth it. But if the goal doesn't have value, the cost can fall heavy on our shoulders. We need to choose our Pyrrhic victories wisely. Is the goal we want to achieve worth the risk and loss? We all choose our own battles, so we need to choose them wisely. That wraps up this Ask Me Anything, and I hope you enjoyed this. And if you have further questions for upcoming episodes, you can always go to evolvefaster.com forward slash discuss, and please support the podcast. We really appreciate it. Take care, and thanks again for listening. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free-thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.